Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Just a quick note before we get started. This episode contains strong language and graphic descriptions. In three, two, one. A few months ago, at the end of 2020, I read this really unusual opinion piece written by a teacher. She was opening up in a local newspaper in Kentucky about the sort of double life she had been leading. You know, I have a couple of friends who work for that newspaper, and so, you know, I reached out to one of them, and I was like, you know, I've been thinking this might be a good time for me to, like, come out. Jessica Duenas is a standout teacher. She was even recently named Kentucky's Teacher of the Year, but she also had secrets that she didn't want to keep inside anymore. She wanted to go public about her struggles with alcoholism. Like no longer was there anything that I could be ashamed of because if I put it all out there, I can live my most honest life. Jessica wrote the story not long after she started really getting sober. And her writing reminded me of how hard those first weeks and months of recovery are. I've been there, the anguish, the psychological struggle. And I was really moved about how Jessica was putting herself out there, basically saying, look at me, I'm struggling. But she's also saying, here's what it's taken for me to get to this point. Jessica has had to give up everything she's worked so hard to preserve, including her privacy and her career, in order to survive. I'm Vic Vela. I'm a journalist, a storyteller, and a recovering drug addict. And this is Back From Broken from Colorado Public Radio. Stories about the highest highs, the darkest moments, and what it takes to make a comeback. I mentioned Jessica was a teacher in Kentucky, Louisville specifically. She made that career choice really early on, back when she was growing up in New York. She was only five at the time. I knew I wanted to teach since I was in kindergarten. I was really shy and I didn't want to speak. And I also didn't speak English very well. And then the teacher there, she was really good about getting me out of my shell. And she was loving, but really firm. And just from there, I decided I wanted to be a teacher. Wow, that's a young time to make a, a career choice. Um, well, let's talk about your, your parents and your home for a minute. Uh, you're a first-generation American. Uh, your dad was born in Cuba, your mother from Costa Rica. Um, what was it like growing up uh, with your parents? What kind of parents were they? My parents did the best they could, but I did not always hear a lot of loving things at home. So when teachers would say it, it would stick with me a lot. Love for my mother was being provided with the space to sleep, clothes, and that's how she determined love for us, you know, making sure that we were physically comfortable and physically safe. But in terms of the emotional piece, you know, that necessarily wasn't there. I was also significantly overweight as a kid, and it was socially acceptable growing up, given our culture, to harp on physical appearance. Mm. And, you know, so eventually I pretty much absorbed that as a, like, I never considered myself pretty. I never considered myself beautiful growing up. Um, but I knew I was fucking smart. You know, I knew I was brilliant, but yeah. that was kind of where it ended. Jessica also remembers that her mom often said some harsh things about people in their family who drank a lot. 
It gave Jessica a negative association with drinking, and she stayed away from it growing up. She was happy getting praise for doing well in school. So, okay, so you got into this private school in middle school, and the good grades continued through high school. You got to college, Barnard College in New York City. That's where you started drinking, right? It is. It was a friend's 18th birthday party, and these guys were just throwing back shots. And I remember looking at it, and I, you know, again, my self-esteem was so low because I didn't think that I was, you know, really worth anything. And I remember I drank and I was like, oh, this is nasty. But I immediately loved the way it felt. Immediately. It was Mm -hmm. crazy. It immediately took away some of that inhibition that I always felt. A lot of that insecurity that I always felt, a lot of it just kind of melted away. I realized that I could be fun, (laughs) you know. And be accepted. Yeah, yeah. On those weekends where I was drinking Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you know, and then brunch on Sunday, trying to recover and having some drinks then too. So did Thursday through Sunday become Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday through Sunday? It No, it became happy hour because, you know, I grew up a little bit. You know, I started teaching immediately after college and I started teaching with about nine other first-year teachers who also were fresh out of college. And so I would drink, say, Thursdays and Fridays and it was fun until somebody pointed out that I was drinking too much at happy hour because I hate getting called out on anything. You know, I'm very prideful. I'm very stubborn. I've always been resistant to being called out. I immediately was like, well, I can't ever drink like this in front of people again. And so that was the switch from drinking at happy hour to drinking in secret. And then it started to become Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It became a daily thing for as long as I lived by myself. And drinking in secret is better than having someone say, Jessica, slow down. You just had your fourth drink. Exactly. Because I had nobody to call me out. I could do my own thing. And that's always been the theme of my life. I can do it by myself. So just to catch listeners up, you started teaching kids with special needs in, in New York. Why pursue that specifically? I knew that I wanted to connect with younger people the same way I had been connected to. I wanted to make others feel good the same way my teachers made me feel good when I didn't always feel good at home. My focus was building relationships with those kids, making them want to try when learning was difficult for them and building those relationships. So teaching special education was definitely a godsend. Jessica met a guy who taught at the same school with her. They spent a lot of time together at work and would bond over the challenges of being a new teacher. And within a few years, they were married and moved to Louisville, Kentucky, closer to her husband's family. At this time, Jessica's drinking was more under control. Anytime I've been like living with people, my drinking had always been more under control because again, I didn't want to be called out. I didn't want someone to tell me, do you think you're drinking too much? (laughs) And so to avoid that kind of conflict, I would always drink less or I would hide it. So tell me about hiding it. You know, what did that look like? If he was around, I would buy plastic bottles so that, like flatter bottles so that I could stick them between the mattress. I would put them all the way in the back of the cabinet. There was one time that he wanted to try box wine. So, you know, I was really excited about that because the amount of wine was great. I remember I literally, I cut a hole in the back of the the wine bag in the box so I could drink it when he wasn't looking. But then he suddenly wanted some and I poured water into the bag hoping that he wouldn't notice that it was gone. And then, of course, when he poured himself some, it was watered down and he was really angry and he was ready to go back to the liquor store, you know, complain. (laughs) Return it. Yeah, and I was like, no, 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 you know, don't don't worry about it. Like, it's just, you know, I'm sure it was just one bad 
bag or one bad box, <laughs> you know. But I did everything. I would keep wine bottles in the trunk. I preferred hard liquor, but again, because I had to moderate and like not completely go into oblivion, I would sometimes, I would drink wine, but I didn't like it. I'd much rather, like I love when I was able to go out and have liquor. Well, Jessica, was there a time when drinking really became a problem, when it really came to a head between you and your husband? Yes, there was one time that I did over, I, you know, I didn't measure correctly and I did over drink enough to blackout. And so I went into a blackout and he found me. And so he called 911 and, you know, I barely remember except kind of waking up at the hospital in the emergency room. And I woke up and I was by myself and I was so confused. And, you know, the nurse told me essentially what happened. So I remember I was like, okay, well, let me just call him so he can come pick me up now that I'm like awake and I'm okay. And when I called him, he just had no desire to come pick me up. He basically was just like, well, you made that decision. So you need to sit there with it. I remember right then and there, I felt like an awful human being because I felt punished. You know, I felt like he punished me for being caught over drinking. And I know I scared him. You know, I'm not going to lie. That was, it's got to be terrifying to come home and find somebody passed out. But his reaction was to punish and to control. And so- There was no compassion. Correct. There was no compassion. So what did that experience do to you? I was so scared from that, that I was really scared about suddenly like being left and being abandoned. And it was like, I could lose everything that I have. So I need to like get this together. But it wasn't like, oh no, I'm sick. I need help. It was just like, okay, I need to just not drink. Mm -hmm. I actually stayed sober for a whole year. I think it was a year and a month or two because I was so scared of losing the life that I had right then and there that it was worth not drinking. And is that how you managed to stay sober for such a long time? I mean, that's more than a year. That's a long time. Yeah. And I mean, you know, at that point I didn't have the physical dependence. So, you know, it was really the whole mental obsession piece. And so, yes, that was enough of a motivation to keep me sober until I didn't necessarily want the marriage or the house. <laughs> and I only wanted the job and then the drinking came back. Jessica's marriage fell apart. And being on her own again, well, that's when her drinking got worse. When I had to leave the house, I did not have stable housing for about a month, a month and a half, while still teaching, for the record, and doing a damn good job of teaching somehow. But, you know, outside of school, I was like losing things in different places. And I started to drink heavily because, again, I was by myself, so nobody was there to call me out on it. And I felt horrible. I had no home. You know, I was losing my home and I was in the middle of like getting divorced and I was escaping from the feelings. So yeah, the drinking got bad then. And you know, once I got my apartment, of course I just continued drinking just as badly because there was nobody there to hold me accountable to anything. Yeah. But you did mention that you were still excelling in the classroom as a teacher. I have to ask, did you ever drink or show up drunk to class? Nope, but I was always hungover, that's for sure. And then as time mm -hmm. passed, I was starting to experience withdrawals. Once I started having that genuine physical dependency, I was shaking, vomiting, almost passing out. It was really bad. How often would that happen? Towards the last year, I want to say it was just about every day. And so, you know, my doctor, I found out that, you know, you could take benzos to deal with withdrawal symptoms. So 
I actually got a prescription for one and I would take it in the morning so that that could calm the shakes. It could calm the nausea. You know, it would hold me over until dismissal and then dismissal would happen. I would go drink myself to a blackout, come to at like two, three in the morning, wake up, lesson plan, grade, rinse and repeat every day. Wow. So, so much of your day was just hanging on until you can get a drink. Right. And so teaching was a great distraction because for me, anytime I taught, because I taught so passionately and I was so into it and so into like helping the kids feel good and, you know, just building the relationships and feeling successful when they were feeling successful, it was an escape. And so it was just like, no matter what was going on in my personal life, I could be having my heart broken. I could have been the worst hangover. Somebody could have died. Horrible things could have happened to me, which horrible things happen to me all the time. But yet I could still show up and teach. I could have gotten an Oscar. You were doing such a good job as a teacher that your work was getting noticed. Tell me about the big recognition you got uh, as teacher of the year and how you felt about that and, and about the work you were doing. Yeah, so teacher of the year was definitely... I'm not going to lie. I knew it was coming. So (laughs) I was nominated by a parent and um, then I ended up winning the award. But winning the award was so bittersweet because my father died April 27th. I I was given the award on May 15th of 2018 to represent the state of Kentucky as the 2019 state teacher of the year. Mm -hmm. But I barely had anyone with me. And so I won that award and I felt like I was alone and I was in withdrawals and it was miserable holding that damn heavy trophy and I was shaking and I was starting to sweat and they had me smiling for so many pictures and I could feel the muscles in my face shaking because, you know, the shakes were just literally everywhere. And as soon as I got home, I was so relieved to get home because I got to drink blackout and go to sleep. And I was, that was the day that I was named the 2019 Kentucky State Teacher of the Year. I was honored. I was moved. I cried. I was in withdrawals. I needed to drink. I went home. Took care. I took my medicine and I fell asleep. Jessica, that's so heartbreaking. You had this incredible recognition and, and you're just suffering all through that whole ceremony. Yeah, it was terrible. Um, it was awful. And then, you know, the funny thing is that I had, you know, one of the local news people asked me for a little interview over the phone. And I was so anxious for them to get off the phone and like get the interview over with so I could like drink. And I remember, you know, I was doing my sing song speaking, you know, making sure that I was saying everything correctly, but I was really just dying to get off the phone so I could drink. You know, I just Mm. was over it. And for the first time you had to miss class one day because you would be so sick in the mornings. I went to the hospital. I, I was like, I need to go to rehab because my drinking never affected my teaching. Never, ever, ever. And that day that I was absent because my withdrawal symptoms were so bad, that's when I was like, oh, uh uh-uh, because my escape was gone. My therapy was gone. My comfort was being taken from me because of drinking. And I was like, well, no, 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 I I need to stop. That was the beginning of my recovery, my genuine recovery journey. You know, when you started your recovery, again, you mentioned this is December of 2019, right? Yeah. When you first started your recovery, when you got sober for the first time after drinking, Did you expect it would be this kind of journey, you know, kind of um, in and out again? Or did you think sobriety and recovery were going to be a straight line? I thought it was going to be a straight line. You know, everything else that I did, I did well. So why wouldn't, you know, why wouldn't being sober be easy? Of course, like it is for a lot of people starting out in sobriety, it wasn't that easy. 
Jessica relapsed and got herself to the hospital. This happened a little over a year ago now. And on that first day, she met someone who would change her life again. I mean, I remember vividly, I walked into the facility. I was still drunk, but I remember I saw him and I immediately was like, oh my God, that man is beautiful. And so I immediately was like, oh my God, I need to stay away from this man. Okay, why stay away from a beautiful man? Because it was a rehab. I was like, what the hell am I doing looking at a man like this in a rehab? I was like, no, you know, like I'm a hot mess. Why am I gonna look at someone else and be like, hmm, maybe this is a good match for me. You know, I knew it was a bad idea on like every level. Yeah. I mean, that's tough. That's a big no-no in rehab, right? Right. (laughs) More with Jessica after a quick break. Hey, it's Vic. I really appreciate you being a Back From Broken listener. It means a lot. Now, can you do me a favor? Can you take a moment to find Back From Broken on whatever podcast app you use, like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and give us a like, a rating, and even a review? If you think what we're doing matters, if you think it's important to talk about recovery with compassion and hope, all you got to do to help spread the word is like, rate, or review this podcast. It really does help other people find Back From Broken. Thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting podcasts from Colorado Public Radio. A little over a year ago now, Jessica had just relapsed and got herself into rehab for what she had hoped would be the last time. That's where she met that beautiful man. You know, I tried to avoid him the whole time that I was in the facility, you know, for that week. He was friendly. I noticed he was very friendly with everybody. And so, you know, he came up to me and, you know, of course I got suckered in with this line. He was like, oh, where are you from? Or where did you move to Kentucky from? And I said, oh, I moved here from New York. And he was like, oh, did you model there? And immediately I was like, oh, that's so cute. You know, I was immediately, I was like, okay, well, I'll talk to him. And so, you know, we decided to keep in touch outside of the rehab and we would go to meetings together and, you know, very quickly, you know, feelings, legitimate feelings develop and we were in a relationship. Did you guys help each other stay sober, you know, those early months? Yeah, I mean, you know, we were always encouraging each other. We had this discussion about like, our own journey. So we would make sure to go to our own meetings and we had like our own recovery friends. But then every now and then we would go to a meeting together. And, you know, that was really fun to do. We had like one specific meeting that we would go to together. It was actually an LGBTQ meeting that I would go to because I felt comfortable there in terms of being an ally. And even though he was straight, he actually agreed to come to those meetings with me. It was really sweet because, you know, like I said, that was definitely out of his comfort zone, but for me, he was doing it. Mm. And um, then we would always go out to dinner after that meeting. And it was just a really nice, really nice experience. Um, So yeah, I mean, that's how we helped each other out. And even when COVID hit, you know, we decided to like move in together because, you know, because of quarantine, we knew being apart and being isolated would be bad for us, especially because the centers, wherever meetings were happening, they were closing down. So as addicts and alcoholics, we were losing our safe spaces. Jessica's recovery was getting stronger, but the pandemic was really hard on her partner. By April, Jessica figured out he was relapsing. He was really struggling, being so isolated away from the gym and his recovery community. And he lied to her about using heroin again. 
He'd disappear back to his old apartment to get high and she'd go looking for him. And then he'd apologize and come home. One day, it was a Tuesday, he said he was just going out to the gas station. But Jessica got worried. So I went back to the apartment. Lo and behold, the car was in the parking lot. Got to the apartment, knocked on the door, nothing. I called the phone, I could hear it ringing, nothing. And I knew he was in there because his phone was in there. So I started banging really hard on the door. He wasn't answering. A neighbor came out. I guess it was like a neighbor slash somebody who had access to keys. Like, I guess somebody who worked for the building. And um, he came out and I was like, look, like open the door. He's sick in there, you know, and he wouldn't let me in. He thought that I was trying to break into the damn apartment. And so then, you know, he wasn't helping me. So I grabbed a fire hydrant that was right there. Mm. And I, not fire hydrant, a fire extinguisher. Yeah, I grabbed it and I started slamming it against the door, you know, with all my strength. And, you know, he was like, I'm going to call 911. And I was like, go ahead, because clearly, like, he's sick in there and you're not helping me. Like, and I knew he could get into the apartment. Mm. So he called 911. And then, of course, he's on the phone. He's like, yeah, there's this tall black woman trying to break into an apartment. And, you know, this is like, Brianna Taylor had freaking died in March. And so the police came. I was still hysterical. I couldn't keep myself together because I already felt what was happening. And so they pinned me up against the wall and I was screaming and I was, they finally, the guy opened the door for the cops. And, of course, they walk in and he's dead. Oh, no, Jessica. Yeah. Every time I tell this story, I have a different reaction. Like, right now, I'm just angry. (laughs) You know? I mean, he was dead. And then the cop lets me go, like, okay, like, I guess she was right. And I was just so angry that the guy didn't trust me. I was so angry that I didn't get there in time. I couldn't believe that he was actually dead. You know, like, I had just seen him two, three hours ago. I couldn't believe that I was the last person that he had interacted with. You know, I, there were just so many things that I couldn't process and believe. Yeah. And then I had to call his mom and tell her that he was dead. And then I called his brother and told him that he was dead. And then, you know, his mom came, like, was there within like a half hour. And, you know, nobody, first of all, telling a mother that her son is dead is one of the worst experiences ever. And then seeing her see her dead son is another one of the most the worst experiences ever. And then seeing him, he was just so blue. You know, I, you know, I just couldn't believe it. I still can't believe it. It's an image that's stuck in my head. It's like, I mean, I'll never forget that. And, you know, thankfully recently, I've been better at remembering positive memories because, you know, he was so much more than that moment. He was so much more than that moment, but it was just so traumatic. And from there, I fell apart. I relapsed that night. I mean, that day. I mean, shit, I got, I went to the liquor store on the way home from his apartment. You know, I saw the coroner carry him out. I was able to like touch his hair, you know, like say bye. And then they took him out and, you know, I never saw him again. And so, yeah, I went home and I drank. And, you know, everybody that I told it completely shocked them because I was hiding, you know, I was ashamed of his own addiction, you know? And so telling everybody, it was just very difficult. Because I was so far away, nobody could be there to. <laughs> no one could be there to comfort me. I know. You no, know? and so I was just there by myself, and I was drinking, and I ended up in the hospital. And then, I mean, since then, I ended up in the hospital like seven damn times, you know. And so, I mean, I'm okay enough today, but that was yeah. the worst experience ever. I'm crying with you. Um. Because 
you know, I've, I've seen it. I've seen, you know, people die like that. And, and I know, um, I'm sorry you had to deal with that because <laughs> you tried so hard to get him help and there's nothing we can do. Jessica and I both needed to take a break after that story. But Jessica has persevered in her recovery. And I know we don't normally talk to someone on this show who's been in and out of the hospital seven times in the past year, but it feels especially important to do that right now, while the pandemic and the isolation that goes along with it is still going on. Jessica always drank more when she was living on her own with no one to call her out. That's one of the reasons the pandemic is especially hard for people in recovery. There's so many things. I mean, I feel like the first one is, again, we're stripped of our supports. And all this isolation, that's a perfect breeding ground to want to drink. As a teacher, you know, teaching became ridiculously impossible and challenging. And then you're still being held to the same damn standards as before COVID. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's just so many things and everybody's situation is different, you know. But... The one thing that we had in common is that everything changed. And when everything changes, not everybody deals well with change. And, you know, in addiction, we need routine. Yeah. Boy, and that's been lost, huh? Right. The uh, Monday morning coffees with your sponsor. And then this meeting that you hit up every week, your home group. And and the hugs, right? right. And the applause. And, you know, it's great we have the Zoom. It's absolutely great that we have the Zoom. But you can't replace that that energy in a room. When did you decide to get help again? And what are you up to now? So I decided to, I ended up hospitalized for the last time, God willing, at the end of October, early November. And when I was in there, I accepted like a more thorough diagnosis, you know, a full assessment and all the works because I was just like, you know, I was so tired of going in and out of hospitals and I accepted taking medications instead of fighting it, you know, because I was so stubborn. So I accepted medications and you know, but while I was in there, I was like, I either need, I need to change everything. I need to give up everything in order to gain everything. Giving up everything has meant doing something that Jessica never expected. Since she was a little kid, the classroom has always been her safe space. Her teachers nurtured her, good grades gave her confidence. I mean, she was the friggin' state teacher of the year. But in order to focus on her recovery, Jessica decided she had to give up teaching. It was hard. I feel like it was coming. It was coming from right after he died. You know, I mean, I had to take medical leave for the last month of school because I ended up in a rehab for like five weeks, you know, so I knew that I was going to have to let it go, but I was stubborn and I was hoping I could figure it out. And so once I did let it go, though, once I said, I'm going to resign, I felt like the world's weight was lifted off my shoulders. Mm, that's good. Just you made the decision and let it go. Yeah, I had to give it up because I gave all of myself to teaching. I went so above and beyond all of the time. I poured from myself all of the time. I was becoming empty because all I gave of myself was teaching. Yeah. And how could I focus on myself when everything that I was doing every single day from morning to night was about somebody else? You know, it was like, I'm not doing these kids any good either. I'm not doing anybody any good by being so stubborn. And so while I was in the hospital, 
I was like, you know what? I'm done. And I didn't know what the hell I would do with my life. But I was like, I'm going to die if I don't. Like, I knew 100% I was going to die if I didn't stop. And now that I'm out of it, I could never go back. I mean, I would if I needed to because I couldn't pay bills and I was, you know, desperate. But I never would want to go back to teach from that perspective. And I really don't want to. And it's crazy. Like, I love teaching, but I really don't want to go back. And so in terms of what I'm doing now, I mean, I found a random job. I have a normal, plain, boring job, which I'm so grateful for because I clock in, I do it, I do it well, and then I clock out and I don't stress about it. (laughs) I do sales for like a private tutoring company. So all I have to do is help people find like the best plans for their children to get them on grade level or whatever. You know, something so minor that I get to use my skill set and my background, but I'm not feeling like I have to save the world. When she finally made the call to leave teaching, that's when Jessica decided to write that newspaper column in the Louisville Courier-Journal. She wrote, I will fight my alcoholism daily. I no longer live in fear of anyone trying to out me. When you wrote the column, was that sort of your coming out? Yes, it was. And I had some former colleagues who I had no idea they were struggling and they reached out and asked me, literally for advice. Like, do you think I should go to this place or this place? Because I've been to just about every facility in Louisville. So, you know, like I could actually talk to them about like what it was like there. People asked me very genuine questions and I didn't realize how much it would help. I knew it would be useful, but I didn't realize how impactful it would be. And then, you know, my email completely blew up with messages either of just encouragement or I can relate or best wishes or, you know, help. (laughs) You know, Isn't that something? Yeah. It, it, it's exactly the point of telling your story, one, to be honest with yourself. And wow, you have struggled to help yourself for so long. Now you're providing help for other people. That's a great feeling. It is. It's unbelievable. It's, it's just funny because I always knew that I would help people, but I never thought that it would look like this. You know, I thought that, I really thought my path was teaching and that, you know, I'd just retire an old teacher And um, I had one plan and the universe had a complete other plan for me. Jessica says she actually still does get to teach her old students in a way. Now she's doing it through her life example. And that's really why Jessica is telling her story. Even though she doesn't have more than a few months of sobriety under her belt, she knows that at each step of the recovery journey, People need an example. We need to see ourselves in someone else's struggles, in someone else's triumphs. I actually, I just got my two month chip, like literally. And I think that people, thank you. And I think that people (laughs) do need to know that I busted my ass to get to that two month point. And I mean, and I'm not sitting here saying that I'll never do it again. God willing, I won't. For today, I won't. That's all I can focus on, but. That's all that matters, yeah. And I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, something I hear in in the recovery rooms a lot is uh, two years is a long time, but two months is a really, really long time because those initial months are so, they're tough. They're tough. And to get through them, it takes a lot of courage. And so congratulations. How has your image of yourself changed? You know, when you look back on the image that you talked about as a kid and, and how you looked and how you thought of yourself? Thank God, it's so much better. I feel that I'm 
a great person. I think I'm a loving person. I do think I'm beautiful inside and out. I feel that I deserve the world. And why not? I know I have a gift. I know I'm here for a purpose. If I didn't die last year, it's damn sure because I'm here for a purpose because I could have died a couple times last year. And the fact that I didn't lets me know that God, the universe, higher power, whatever anybody else wants to call it, wants me here for a reason. And so for that, when I look in the mirror, I feel good. And it's not just because I might like the outside, it's because of everything that I carry in my heart. Jessica has left Kentucky and she's in Florida now with support from family and friends. And her relationship with her mom is so much better. She actually told Jessica she was proud of her for getting help. Jessica's advice now is to get help the first time you think you might need it. And that two-month sobriety chip she got right before our conversation, well, she's almost doubled it now. She sent me a voicemail. I'm 98 days sober. One of the biggest things that has been really key for me to stay sober at least these past 98 days has been finally having a way to deal with my grief. Today, I can actually channel it through writing. And when I write, I feel really productive and it feels really good to get the feelings out of my head and off my heart and onto paper. I have a tool. Now I have a toolbox. I didn't have a toolbox before. Thankfully, that has really helped me and made a big difference in me staying sober, at least for these 98 days, and hopefully it'll work for tomorrow too. Back from Broken is a show about how we're all broken sometimes and how we need help from time to time. If you're struggling with alcoholism, you can find a list of resources at our website, backfrombroken.org. Thanks for listening to Back From Broken. Please review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find it. Back From Broken is hosted by me, Vic Vela. It's a production of Colorado Public Radio's Audio Innovation Studio and CPR News. Our lead producers today were Matthew Simonson and Rachel Estabrook. Find a list of everyone who helped make this episode in the show notes. This podcast is made possible by Colorado Public Radio members. Learn about supporting Back From Broken at CPR.org.